Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics. Lytton First Nation has issued an evacuation order for some of its reserves. It says the number of structures lost to the fire has jumped from three this morning to now sitting in the double digits. So Lytton PC is on fire again. The wildfire is now at an estimated 2,223 hectares and growing. And it's not the only one. This summer, like last summer, wildfires are spreading from South Korea to Spain to Argentina. It's getting really hot in here, here being the world. Extremes are becoming more extreme and more common because we refuse to change our ways of life, mainly stop burning fossil fuels that contribute to the continued warming of our planet. And we were warned. So let's declare it. Welcome to the climate disaster. We've been here for a while, but governments, including our government, are still doing very little, very effectively about it. I don't know about you guys, but I'm tired of it. The federal government's failures aren't recent. They go back about 30 years. That's right, 30 years of failing to implement effective climate policy and meeting targets. Let me take you back to when our current environment and climate change minister, Stephen Guibault, criticized Canada's decision to leave the Kyoto Protocol in 2011, the world's first major international climate agreement. Canada will formally leave the Kyoto Protocol at the end of this year. Was it a great shock to hear about this uh, decision? I would like to tell you that it was a shock, unfortunately, since 2006, since our Conservative government have, have taken power, uh, they've done nothing to, to help Canada achieve its Kyoto commitment. Here's our previous Environment Commissioner, Julie Gelfand, on the next agreement in Copenhagen. Overall, we found that the federal government is not prepared to adapt to the impacts of a changing climate. Our audit found that the federal government had shifted its focus to a new, more difficult target, one that has to be met in 2030. Oh, and that new 2030 target? From the looks of it, we're probably missing that one too. Over the weekend, Gibo said that the oil and gas industry could get more time to meet its emissions targets. Some of the measures that, that will be needed to achieve those deep emission reduction might require more time than what we have between now and 2030. The industry has told us we will need about a decade. Just to put that in context, oil and gas made up 26% of Canada's national emissions in 2019. And let's not forget that earlier this year, the federal government actually gave the green light to Bay du Nord, a major oil deep water drilling project off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador. 
Oh, and we're still building pipelines. Think of it this way. Canada, one of the major oil and gas producing and guzzling countries of the world, was assigned homework to reduce emissions by the world. Instead of doing our homework well, we keep asking for extensions and making excuses for why we can't submit. The dog ate our homework. We're moving, so sorry, we can't submit. Meanwhile, the world just kept getting hotter, and now we're here. And that's where the Federal Commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development comes in. Jerry DeMarco is tasked with evaluating the government's policies and delivering objective and independent analysis and recommendations on the federal government's efforts to protect the environment. He's the eyes and ears on Canadian climate policy for Parliament. This year, Commissioner Jerry DeMarco released five reports that took a critical look at carbon pricing, the potential of hydrogen to reduce emissions, a just transition to a low-carbon economy, federal funds at climate-ready infrastructure efforts, and the greening government strategy, all effective policies that we really need to address this climate disaster. But what he found was that our governance structures are failing, that the government isn't collecting enough data, that they're making questionable funding decisions, and that they're not taking charge properly. So let's get into it. Hi, Jerry. Thanks so much for for joining us on the backbench. Well, thanks for inviting me, Fatima. So before we actually talk about climate, can we talk about your ties? I watched a press conference you gave last winter when you were talking about emissions reduction plans in the oil and gas sector. And in that press conference, you were sporting a polar bear tie at another press conference in May. I think it was giraffes. I'm curious, do you have the entire animal kingdom in ties? And do you have a favorite? So I better say my favorite is the giraffe one because my daughters bought me that one. Uh, I do like the polar bear one. It actually comes from uh, Nunavut. And um, no, I don't have all of uh, the world's biodiversity reflected in my ties, but I am trying to uh, to have a representative sample. Is there is there one that you're looking for next, a particular animal tie that we can keep a lookout for? If you could find one, I would like one of a kestrel if you can find one. Oh, that's very specific. Okay, noted. <laughs> So your role, uh, Commissioner of the Environment and Sustainable Development, it's a job with a lot of consonants. What does it actually mean? Can you demystify this job for us? Yeah, when you go through all the vowels and the consonants, you'll find that uh, we're part of the Office of the Auditor General of Canada. So we essentially are evaluating the performance of the federal government in the area of the environment and sustainable development. And the results of our performance evaluations, our performance audits, we present to Parliament. We're not part of the the government itself. Our client is Parliament. And by virtue of that, essentially, all Canadians. So you're sort of in charge of keeping oversight over the government's climate actions or inactions, basically. Yeah, we evaluate the performance of the government in terms of its climate actions and inactions. They're responsible for delivering it. So we we tell Canadians in Parliament how the government is doing. And after you released your five reports in April, the word everyone used to describe how the government is doing was failure. And I wonder if that's how you saw it after the assessments you made in, in those reports. Yeah, that uh, series of five reports coupled with our fall 2021 report on climate change, which we called Lessons Learned, portrays quite graphically in, in the cover of, of the report from last fall that Canada's emissions 
of greenhouse gases has been going up since 1990, even though the commitments from Canada and the international community were to stabilize and then diminish those emissions. So it has been a failure on the results. You said when the reports were released, and and I'm going to quote you to you, you said Canada was once a leader in the fight against climate change. However, after a series of missed opportunities, it has become the worst performer of all G7 nations since the landmark Paris Agreement on Climate Change was adopted in 2015. Can you elaborate on that? Okay, so going way back to 1988 with uh, Canada hosting the climate conference, the first big international conference on the climate in Toronto to 1990 with Canada having a green plan with a commitment on climate to 1992 where Canada was a leader amongst industrial nations in encouraging our colleagues around the world to adopt the Rio Climate Convention and the Biodiversity Convention as well. So Canada was leading in terms of calling for action. What happened from the early 1990s to now, which is three decades, is that we've been uniquely bad amongst the G7 nations in that our emissions have increased by about 13% over the last three decades, while all the other nations in the G7 have had their emissions decreased, some of them quite substantially. We've had no shortage of plans, about 10 of them now over 30 years. We've had no shortage of international commitments from Rio in 92 to Kyoto to Copenhagen to Paris. But we've had missed opportunities in the sense that our commitments are not followed up with concrete actions. And those are the, that's what I'm talking about in terms of Canada having the right intentions, but not showing that in the form of results and outcomes. And this is across sort of political stripes and governments and, and so forth. It's just been a consistent Canadian government thing, right? Yeah, there's no correlation in terms of who's in power. Canada's emissions have been uh, going up, as I said, about 13% from 1990 to 2020. Most of the increase was in the first decade and a half. And then since then, it's been mainly flatlining. When was the, I guess, the turning point when we went from like having good intentions to failing on following up uh, to them? It was almost immediate after the commitment. Um, and it's interesting, one of, one of the plans of the 10 that have been uh, put forward, one of them was actually called turning the corner. So we had the intention of turning the corner because the graph kept going up and it was time to turn the corner and make the graph go down in terms of emissions. It was essentially right after the commitment in 1990 and 1992, we saw the emissions go up quite considerably for the next 10 or 12 years. Is it because it sounds good to say that we're going to do something on climate, but it's just not perhaps sexy to do anything on climate? Is, is that the disparity here? Well, there's a lot of reasons, and that's why we entitled our November 2021 report to Parliament Lessons Learned on Climate Change, because we came up with eight um, particular lessons which, if they are heated, could result in Canada actually turning the corner and starting to meet its commitments rather than just making commitments. It's interesting because every time you put out a report, and I know if you've put out two sets in the past year uh, alone, we always hear the government say, yeah, we agree with the environment commissioner. We agree with these recommendations and we're working on it. We're going to do something on it. Do you ever feel troubled that it almost seems like they're putting a smile on their face, but then not actually following through with actions to this day, like three decades on? 
Well, it is disappointing to see the actions not matching the words. It's one of the reasons why we concluded the Lessons Learned report with lesson number eight about intergenerational equity, trying to position this issue of climate change in a longer term view, because politics, news cycles, the economy, and so on, they often discount the future. And you can have a good long-term vision and a good long-term intention, but you're defeated by you know, the fires that need to be fought immediately. So in our report, we talk about the need for governments to take a broader and a longer-term view to not only protect the current generation, but generations to come. And that requires a big change because normally the focus is on you know today's question period or this week's news cycle or maybe at the most between now and the next election things that span generations are not necessarily at the top of mind when it comes to action they can be mentioned in commitments but the actions speak louder than words of course well this gets to something i've been thinking a lot about as a climate reporter which is it seems like maybe politics isn't the right avenue. And I wonder if that's a conclusion that's fair to make after reading your reports. Well, it's a whole of society problem. So all actors, whether it's the public service side of government, the political side of the government, or even the judiciary or offices like ours, we all have a role to play, everyday citizens, communities, the corporate sector, and so on. We all have a role to play. To the extent that climate action is dependent on on fitting that within the short-term exigencies of politics, then it may be difficult. But um, politicians can also pass laws that require long-term thinking, so that it's pulled out of that um, you know the everyday everyday firefighting and put into into another forum. So it is possible to deal with this. Canada is actually the only G7 country that's not reducing its emissions, and the other G7 countries are democracies as well. So I don't think Canada has the excuse that it's too difficult just because we have politics here. <laughs> we have politics in the other G7 as well. So what is Canada's um, excuse then, I guess, and is it justified to make? Well, you can ask the government itself what their excuses <laughs> have been. Well, I, I guess you get to you get to see their documents and you get to hear from them in your official role. Like, are you convinced by the reasoning they give you? Well, the pattern has been kind of interesting to watch. It, it's essentially a plan is created. It has a long term outlook. And as it gets closer to that date, you know, the due date for it, and it looks like they're not going to make that uh, due date with the uh, target being achieved, attention diverts to a new, better plan. And then we have this cycle of we're always thinking about what's coming next, but not reminding Canadians that we failed on the previous one. So part of our role as an accountability office is to let Parliament and Canadians know that this series of plans, 10 of them now to date, They've not delivered on them. And I'm here to remind people that results are what matters, not just good intentions. It's interesting because we're doing this interview the same day the federal government has finally announced its proposal to cap oil and gas emissions using an industry-specific carbon pricing system or a cap-and-trade system. The Liberals promised they'd do this in the last election, and they say their goal is to drive down oil and gas emissions by 40% by the end of this decade. I mean, you know, just to follow up from your last thought, what do you think of this plan? Is this ambitious or simply unrealistic? Is it following the same pattern that you just described for us? 
Well, it may signal a break from the pattern, but you know, to put it in context, the Earth's temperature responds to total greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, and that's determined by past and present emissions and removals from the atmosphere. And our net emissions have been going up globally and in Canada, while Canada keeps committing to reducing those emissions. But the measures that it's been implementing to date have generally been helping in reducing the efficiency of our polluting activities rather than the overall total. And remember, it's the overall total emissions that matter when it comes to heating the planet. So if we can shift from looking at the efficiency with which we pollute to the total amount of pollution, and in this case, a cap on emissions rather than just targets in terms of how efficient we pollute, then that would signal a change. Finally, you know, 30 years into this, this journey, we finally see some discussion now for the oil and gas sector of capping total emissions rather than working on just the efficiency with which they pollute the atmosphere. Okay, but I guess we have to wait for the details to know fully if that's what their approach is. Yeah, so there's no details in the emissions reduction plan or to date on exactly what they're going to do. It's it's something that they're they're planning on with a time horizon for next year in terms of rolling out. But the theory of putting a a more accurate price on carbon and coupling that with a cap on total emissions, that does pose some promise. The devil is in the details, of course. You've criticized the government's incoherent policies, that's your words, when it comes to the oil and gas sector. They bought Trans Mountain, for example. And I wonder if you see this as a break from that, if this is finally like a serious head-on approach to the oil and gas sector, which Canada has always seemed shy of addressing seriously. It's hard to know. We tend to measure results more than just intentions. And if I were to look back at all 30 years and 10 plans, <laughs> and you asked me that question each time a new plan came out, maybe I would have said I'm a, I'm a little bit optimistic. And maybe that that little bit would diminish over time as I got, uh, I got more and more uh, familiar with the, the history of failures. <laughs> so I would say it can work. It's just a question of will at this point. If they want to add up the emissions so that they meet the target of 40 to 45% reduction by 2030 and net zero by 2050. It's physically possible. The question is whether they will have the will to do it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We're talking about Will, and I wondered if I could get into some specifics, because I'm really interested to hear your analysis of this, you know, contrast between intention and actual result. Um, because in your reports, for example, you talk about the Just Transition Act, which essentially tries to keep the costs of the green transition fair for everyone in the country. But you found that the bulk of the burden will fall on Indigenous people and rural communities, as it often does with most climate policies in, in Canada. And I wondered if you could explain to the city dwellers among us why that's the case. 
Yeah, so first of all, we talk about they had a commitment to a Just Transition Act. They actually haven't delivered on that, so there is no legislation yet. So there's just the, you know, the notion that they are going to facilitate a just transition, which is essentially an equitable approach that leaves nobody behind in the transition to what will be a quite a different economic future for Canada, a more carbon neutral future, which will mean that certain industries that are currently favored won't be favored anymore and vice versa. So, for example, fossil fuels, to the extent that we rely on them considerably in Canada, which is something we point out in the Lessons Learned report as well, they are foreseen to be diminishing over time, their importance in the energy mix diminishing over the time. That's not just us saying that, that's the International Energy Agency saying that. So, for example, communities and workers associated with that industry have the right to question, okay, what are you going to provide for in terms of our future? Where are we going to be? Are we going to be left behind in some sort of Darwinian survival of the fittest approach to a transition? Or are we going to plan this properly with retraining and education and so on so that when one door closes, another door opens? And what's the answer that you get to a question like that? Well, this is another, we're going back to this intention issue, right? Canada's had good intentions on a just transition ever since those words were put into the Paris Agreement 2015. That's now seven years, and we still don't even have the framework legislation to enable it, even though we've had you know other painful transitions in Canada in the past, and our office has recommended before to have legislation in place to, to facilitate a more efficient and more equitable type of transition. So, you know, the intentions are there. I got the impression after tabling this report that they were going to re-accelerate their work on this. We'll see more in the fall to see whether there is actual legislation. That would be the most tangible manifestation of their will is to see uh, new legislation on just transition, as promised, coming this fall. Well, it's interesting because this is something that comes up a lot in the climate conversation, that vulnerable communities, usually BIPOC, are the ones who suffer and pay the most for the climate emergency. And there is a bill right now in the House of Commons, Bill C-226, which will look into environmental racism. And to me, it almost feels like a cop-out because we've seen the federal government put Indigenous rights in the backseat when in battle with oil and gas uh, repeatedly. And I wondered what, in your opinion, does good equitable climate strategy look like and how can it be implemented in Canada? I would say that, you know, the the international framework of Agenda 2030 in terms of the sustainable development goals, it would be a good approach for Canada to use in making sure that the transition that they are proposing to embark on in terms of especially the energy transition is done in a way that is equitable and accommodates all interests, including those from diverse communities. And that's, you know, that's at the heart of, of the notion of sustainable development and the heart of what Canada committed to in 2015 with the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. Okay, so you're saying that the blueprints are there, we're just not ad- adopting them as quickly as we need to. Certainly at the broad level, the blueprints are there, but you also need to think about it at the local level, right? The, what's happening in one community might be quite different from another. So, this transition needs to be informed by both the larger federal policy of a target, you know, to say 40 or 45 percent emissions reduction, but also at the local level of the individual community or indigenous community that's being affected to find out what particular challenges they are facing already and what they expect to face and to tailor the solutions 
to that local milieu. But Jerry, doesn't that require governments, plural, to actually go into these communities, do outreach, understand the impact of climate, work with local scientists and researchers and and so forth, and then create a policy that isn't one size fits all, but can be customized very easily to each community so we can deter the impacts of, of the climate emergency? Yeah, you're essentially advertising our seventh lesson from our Lessons Learned report, which is to have enhanced collaboration amongst all actors to find real climate solutions. So, yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more that, you know, just because you have an international target, for example, maintaining global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius or a national target of 40 to 45% reductions by 2030 and net zero by 2050, that doesn't mean that the conversation stops there. You then have to figure out at the at the indigenous community level, at the local municipality, at the provincial and the territorial government levels, how it all fits together because it's a whole of society challenge. It's a whole of globe challenge and a whole of society challenge that is affected by and is affecting people at all levels who are working at, at, whether they're working at the federal level, the provincial level, or the local level, it all has to come together if we're going to succeed in coming together to avoid catastrophic climate change. I know I keep asking you these existential questions, but why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we cooperating across all levels? Like, what is holding us back from from accomplishing that? Well, it's interesting you use that word because the Supreme Court of Canada even recognizes that this is an existential threat to the planet, including the human and non-human inhabitants of of the planet. So I can't summarize it for you in, in, in one answer, but <laughs> I would recommend that you you and the listeners have a look at our Lessons Learned report to look at these big picture, these eight lessons that we've put together that we think could help turn the corner. I mean, one of your reports did talk about the struggle between the federal government and provinces as something holding us back from good policy being implemented. Is there a policy-based solution to this infighting to help us cooperate more, or do the politicians just have to duke it out the way they do? Well, Canada makes these commitments at the international stage in acting at the federal level as the government that represents Canada in these international fora. So Canada has to come back to a federal state and figure out how to implement those commitments. Fortunately, with respect to climate change especially, the Supreme Court of Canada has recognized that the feds can take the lead on initiatives such as carbon pricing so that we aren't reliant on the goodwill of every province and territory to agree to something. Now, we did have something close to that in the pan-Canadian framework a few years ago, but it eventually fell apart with some provinces that then actively opposing federal efforts around carbon pricing. But we do have the room in the federal government's residual power under the Constitution to act on national and international concerns such as climate change. So the feds can put together a policy framework and a legal framework that ensures that a certain level of results will be achieved even if the provinces aren't playing ball or if some provinces aren't playing ball. It's the idea of a backstop so that the there's always going to be some minimum level of results happening regardless of whether the provinces come on board. Now, having said all of that, there's no reason to think that the majority of the provinces won't come on board. I think everybody wants to have you know, a stable climate, clean air, clean water, 
healthy food and so on. Everyone agrees on that. It's just the pathway to get there creates a lot of divisions and so on. This goes back to my earlier answer about just transition. That's why it's really important to make sure that whatever transition happens doesn't leave people behind and that they aren't scared off of that new future because of the worry that they're going to be one of the losers in the equation and the other people in another province will be considered the winners, for example. Is there a way out of this vicious sort of cycle we're in where, you know, you apply a climate policy, people get unhappy about the cost of it, you remove the climate policy, but then climate change is still happening and it just goes on and on and on. Well, as much as people would like to simplify it, there is no zero consequence way out of this. You know, by missing the boat in terms of capping greenhouse gas emissions when we still had a chance, say in the uh, late 80s and early 90s and so on, we've now made it so that there are significant consequences to both action in terms of transitioning to a green economy and equal to our greater consequences of inaction in terms of catastrophic climate change with all of the floods, the fires, and every sea level rise and melting permafrost associated with that. So there is no easy way out now, right? So we have to figure out a way that is workable, that is equitable and just, but there's no magic wand that we can wave for this particular problem. We've got either going to have to adapt to you know a much different climate in the future, whether it's 1.5 degrees warmer or even higher, or we've got to try to at least maximize our chances of of limiting that warming to something that uh, that the United Nations uh, panel believes can be can be at least managed, even though there'll still be there'll still be lots of consequences even at 1.5. So, yeah, tough question, and and a tough way ahead. Either action or inaction is going to require require Canadians and people around the world to adapt to a different reality, whether it's a physical one or an economic one. I was really hoping you'd tell us there is a magic wand. I'm disappointed. <laughs> yeah, the uh, and I, I think by asking that, there there is always this, this technological hope, putting off short-term difficult decisions and saying, we hope that this future technology will solve everything and therefore you can avoid having to make tough choices today. This feeds into, you know, the, you know, the short-term nature of politics makes those sorts of arguments quite uh, attractive to certain people because they don't have to make a tough decision that might impact, you know, the current election or the next election, and they just promise that something in the future will will help. And I can't predict that. I mean, we're, we mainly in our office look back at how well the government has performed. I have no idea whether there'll be a technology or a magic wand that will emerge that makes this a lot easier. We haven't seen it yet, and it's pretty risky to keep warming the planet in the hope that something magic does arrive. So it's not hydrogen, which is what I wanted to ask you about. (laughs) So in terms of physics, hydrogen is very interesting. I've been interested in it since I was a kid because it does have the um, attraction of, of not emitting greenhouse gas emissions when burned. But in terms of making it economically feasible, and extracting it from water, for example, through electrolysis, it's very costly to do that. And and if you use fossil fuels to generate the power to run the hydrogen production system, then all you're doing is displacing the emissions. Having said that, you know, hydrogen in and of itself as a fuel has some promise depending on how it's produced. And that's, that's the focus of one of our reports from the spring was that 
the two departments working on a hydrogen pathway for Canada at the federal level, Natural Resources Canada and Environment and Climate Change Canada, couldn't even agree on the basic premise of how much hydrogen could contribute to our targets. So it remains to be seen what hydrogen will will be like in the future in terms of its role in the energy mix. But if it's simply used as a way of displacing emissions from one place to another, then it won't solve anything. If it ends up, you know, being something that is made with, you know, using renewable energy and so on, then it does show some promise. So we'll have to stay tuned on that. It's a, it's it's not something that's going to provide a silver bullet in the immediate term. Even just the infrastructure for it will take years to produce and still has to come down to this question of whether it can be produced at an economically viable rate and through pathways that rely more on renewable energy than on fossil fuels. I wondered if hydrogen strategies are part and parcel of the same issue that we keep coming back to in this conversation, which is just smoke and mirrors, you know, good intentions with little impactful action that ultimately, unfortunately, continues to support the fossil fuel industry. Yeah, so it comes back to one of my answers earlier in this conversation, which is total emissions is what really matters, right? So hydrogen in and of itself is not a solution or a problem, but it depends on on how it's produced. And if hydrogen is simply a way of storing energy that was already captured in natural gas, and essentially just changing the form of energy from natural gas, which can be combusted, to hydrogen, which can be combusted, then sure, that might be slightly better than using coal as an energy source or using coal to produce hydrogen even, but it's not necessarily going to have the net emissions globally, net emissions reductions that we need in terms of the long term. So you've got to factor it all in what would I call a full cost accounting to figure out, okay, what amount of greenhouse gas emissions are going to end up in the atmosphere and how much is going to be pulled out of the atmosphere on a net basis with all of these strategies? Are we going to truly get to a net zero or are we just going to be shuffling the deck a little bit and and uh, perhaps from one country's perspective, exporting some of the emissions and meeting the targets domestically, but not, not necessarily internationally? It's a complex you know, equation of, uh, with a lot of variables involved, but it all does come down to, are we going to keep putting up net emissions of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and therefore keep warming the planet? Or are we going to pull that curve downwards towards net zero and probably eventually, in order, to, in order to really avoid catastrophic climate change, even get to net negative at some point? We talk a lot about Canada's climate change policies. I wondered if you believe there are also climate resilience policies. Like, is there a difference between a climate change policy and a climate resilience policy? I mean, the federal government is working on both mitigation, so trying to avoid worsening climate change, and that that involves bringing our curve of greenhouse gas emissions down. And it's working on adaptation because we didn't succeed uh, as a society, both Canada and worldwide, in stopping climate change early enough. So we have to now to adapt to the consequences of increased sea level rise, melting permafrost fires and so on. So a climate resilient policy would look at both doing our part in preventing further warming, or at least limiting the amount of further warming, and doing our part 
to ensure that those who are already experiencing the effects of climate change and will be because of the long time that greenhouse gas, gases reside in the atmosphere, that they are also being able to be helped in terms of adapting to that new warmer reality with more extreme weather or more frequent weather events that have always occurred, but have, that are now more frequent or more extreme. And do you think we're doing both well? No. I mean, Canada, as I've said before, Canada's emissions have been rising for 30 years. So we we, we started off a 30-year journey and we're further from the destination than when we started. <laughs> so, no, Canada's had lots of good intentions and lots of plans, but the results are sorely lacking. And in an adaptation, it's a little harder to measure. I can't put it for you in one graph like the emissions graph for the last 30 years. But, you know, we've already seen loss of life through through extreme heat in uh, last summer, through flooding, loss of life and property through flooding, um, wildfires and so on. We are, we're already seeing those effects and you know, emergency responders do their best to try to mitigate the effects of those, but we're gonna have to have a national adaptation strategy to be better prepared for those sorts of things in the future because they are going to become more frequent and more severe even if we reach net zero tomorrow, just because of the amount of greenhouse gas emissions that are already up in the atmosphere and take a long time to come back out of. I know the results over the last 30 years are pretty abysmal and very depressing, but ha are, have we done anything that is good? Like, is there a silver lining in this? Have you found any consequential effective policies that the governments have implemented? So at the individual policy level, like if we look at the last plan, not the current one that had over 60 measures in it, it's not like we're saying that all 60 measures are all losers. There, there, there's some of them that are work. All of the major you know, international organizations recognize that carbon pricing, if you put a proper price on it, works in terms of uh, you know, the theory that goes back 100 years in terms of economics of internalizing previous negative externalities. So carbon pricing is a policy that should work. Canada was very slow in getting to that point. It took till a few years ago before carbon price actually came in at the federal level, even though the federal government had committed to uh, dealing properly with climate change back in 1990. So there are examples like that. Some of the regulations were starting to see regulations having an effect perhaps in reducing methane, which is a very strong greenhouse gas. So yeah, there are definitely components of it. What the graph shows though is that the list of things or the magnitude of things on the negative side of the ledger in terms of progress have been outweighing those on the positive side. And the net effect has been, as I said, we're further from our destination now than when we started this journey in 1990. Yeah, it doesn't make for happy times for any of us. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about goals today, and I know you did so in your reports as well, and how the government isn't ambitious enough for some things and too ambitious for others. As we almost certainly head into a recession, how do you think we can balance the need for ambitious climate goals with realistic expectations and, you know, good impact. You've probably heard about um, building back better, or maybe as, as some would say, building forward better, because we don't necessarily want to recreate exactly what we just came from. So with respect to coming out of COVID and dealing with any economic downturn, I think it is a time for countries around the world to think about what they would like the future to be, as opposed to just hurrying up to try to get back to what they're used to. What we've been used to 
has had a lot of good, you know, with, with respect to education, healthcare, and all of those things that have advanced over the last many years. But there's it's been associated with a lot of bad in terms of the environment and and, and global climate change. I think it's possible to have all of those things dovetail together in terms of an equitable um, future that um, that reflects, for example, the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Canada's governments will need to think long and hard about what future they really do want to strive for and not be defeated by short-term emergencies in politics and think about what our children will experience and what our children's children will experience and plan for that as well as today. Have you ever gotten a good answer from a government official that you may have talked to in the creation of your reports about what kind of future they want to create? Oh, lots of good answers on the future that they want to create. I don't think uh, Canada's really suffered from a lack of vision in terms of addressing climate change. As I've said before, it's more the gap between ambition and results where Canada's been uniquely poor. And I think that's what we really are trying to expose with uh, these reports is that we've got to focus on outcomes and results. If they're accompanied by good intentions, great, but good intentions on their own are insufficient. Do you ever worry that the way the governments are approaching climate gives ammo to people who want them to do nothing, perhaps? Possibly. I mean, the the slow pace of action on just transition, for example, has made convincing certain regions of the country more difficult because the promises of, you know, an equitable future that aligns with, you know, a low carbon economy, the promises have been there, but the actions haven't. They've just been using, as our report states, just been relying on existing social programs. So it can give ammunition if you don't follow up meaningful words with the actions, you may alienate people. And that's the danger, right, is that people will give up and say that uh, government isn't doing its part. They may be catering to interests other than mine, and then therefore I'm not going to do my part. It's a whole of society problem, and governments need to lead, but they're not the only ones that have an impact. You and I have an impact. The corporate sector has an impact. All levels of government have an impact. NGOs have an impact. Everybody does. It's important that we all work together towards a common goal of a sustainable climate and a healthy planet for all. Well, you were commissioner in Ontario before this, and now you're a commissioner federally. And those are two very vastly different governments and vastly different publics as well that that you're dealing with. I wonder, you know, over the career that you've had, what do you think the public doesn't understand still right now about climate issues? What message isn't getting through and, and why? I have to give a sort of a more pluralism-based answer to that. You know, it'll depend on the person involved, but the data do show that Canada's population is not as informed as some other countries in terms of understanding the the climate crisis and what needs to be done about it. It's way better than, say, in 1992 when, you know, I attended my very first conference on on climate, Um, but it's still not something that's uh, universal. I'm inspired in part by the younger generation, you know, speaking to people who are, you know, half my age or less than that. I find that there's not a lot of convincing that needs to be done, so part of it will be generational. I have a lot of faith in the current younger generation to recognize that actions are needed and not just words. I also feel sorry for that generation that they're absorbing the you know, essentially the temporal externalities from from their ancestors in terms of having to live with this degree of climate change that they had no part in creating. But uh, I do find some inspiration from the younger generation who are 
living climate change from day zero, as opposed to, you know, those of us who only recognize it as an issue partway through their adult life. And they will be providing the hope, I think. And perhaps as they age, they will be our leaders sooner rather than later. And, and uh, they will be the authors of, of the, the next chapter of the story and whether it will be really turning the corner or whether it will be just an extrapolation of, of what has been a series of missteps and failures for the last 30 years. Jerry, thank you so much for this extensive conversation. I know you don't do too many of these. I'm sure you'll be watching and coming back, hopefully, to talk to Canadians even more about what we did right and what we didn't do right. Yes, stay tuned for our next series of reports on all sorts of environment and sustainable development issues this fall. It was a pleasure to be uh, here with you today, Fatima, and look forward to chatting again in the future. All right, on that note, let's adjourn. That's The Backbench. In two weeks, we'll bring you another panel with the people you know and love. In the meantime, send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email me, Fatma, at CanadaLand.com. We're also on Twitter at BackbenchCast. And if you like, you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. You can find my work at The Narwhal. This episode was produced by Noor Azrie with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.